little bit of an interim now between this time and the feast. And uh, I got thinking a little bit this morning about the book of Jude, and I want to go there. Uh, It does have something to do with the feasts of God. Attitude, approach, uh, how we ought to be and how we ought not to be in terms of our attitudes, our direction. Now remember that James and Jude were brothers, half-brothers of Christ, uh, half-brothers in the sense that they had the same father, but Christ was begotten of the Holy Spirit, so that it made them, in in terms of blood, only half-brothers. So they had been with Christ uh, throughout their lifetimes, and Second Peter 2 is a very similar uh, chapter to this one chapter of Jude. So the things that Jude has to say here are very important. They're reflected by Peter himself and by James, uh, if you, you follow the context a bit. And let's notice how he addresses things. He's not just writing this to the world. Now, some of the things he says could be uh, applied to the physical nation around us of Israel, could be applied to the world for that matter, because some of the things he says are pretty diabolical. Now, at the beginning, let's understand that Jude uses pretty dramatic language to describe a circumstance, and it doesn't maybe sound like it fits you and me in terms of how dramatic he gets. And yet, on the other hand, let's notice to whom he addresses this book, this letter. Jude, the servant of Emmanuel, and brother of James, to them, now this is to whom he addresses, that are sanctified by God the Father, we are set aside by God the Father, John six forty four again. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So we're called, sanctified, set apart by the Father, and preserved in Emmanuel, and called. So they go over the list, the Father designates, and Christ's job is to do the calling then, to do the work, and to preserve us once we are called into the knowledge and the truth of God. So he is addressing the church here. And we're going to see as we go through that he is addressing not only the church in that day, but he is addressing the church from that time forward unto and including today and the immediate future until Christ returns. So this is a timeless book that's written for then and written for you and me, as is the rest of Scripture, obviously, as 2 Timothy 3.16 shows. So he says, mercy to you and peace and love be multiplied. So his attitude in writing this to the church that was then beginning to be scattered around the world His attitude toward them was that they might have mercy. We all need mercy. They did then. We do now. So he addresses the weightier matters 
the bigger attitudes that we need to be aware of. He didn't address at this point the bent and cumin and anise, the smaller things, but he is addressing the major things. So he had a big picture in mind when he wrote this book. Mercy to you. So as we read this, let's consider Jude's attitude and how he felt about the church and the brethren in it and how we should feel one toward another. Remembering, of course, as I've said many times and as is written in the Bible many times in one way or another, that we will receive mercy if we show mercy. We will be given love if we show love. We are going to be judged <clears throat> by how we treat one another. That is so very, very clear. Now, it's easy for us to hear, to sit, to listen, and agree, and then not translate it into our attitudes and our everyday lives toward each other. We will find as we go through here that we have to take personal responsibility. We have to change. Now, he's writing here to the church, and he prays or asks for mercy and offers his own feeling of mercy to the people. But he then points out some difficulties within the church that needed to be addressed. We will get to those and the attitudes that are there. But unless we take personal responsibility, nothing gets accomplished. You know, we can read about mercy, peace, and love. But are we going to multiply it? That's what he wishes here, is that it be multiplied. Now, how do you multiply peace, mercy, and love? How do you multiply it? You spread it. You do it. You do it to other people. That's what conversion is all about. We live in a world that is selfish, a world that thinks first of itself, we live in a world that has maybe twisted us, bent us, warped us from birth on. And we can blame others for our problems. We can blame our parents. We can blame our siblings. We can blame our school system. We can blame our government. We can blame the devil. It is so easy for us not to accept our own responsibility. And we can have resentment and frustrations over being what we are and why we are, can't we? We can make for ourselves excuses for being the way that we are. Enter conversion. God knew what you were. He knew your background. He knew every mile you'd walked in your moccasins. He knew everything, every detail about you. And he hasn't forgotten any of them. 
So, <coughs> your character, your approach, your excuses, everything he looked at and considered. And he decided, I will call that one. With all our blemishes, our warts, our sins, our faults, our lack of character, with all our background, whatever resentments and attitudes, worldliness, every problem that we had, he took into account and said, I want that one. Can we deny that? No. If you're here, if you understand the truth of God, it's because He opened your mind to it. And He put the Lord Christ there to preserve you and to see you through and to win this thing. Now it is up to us to become Converted, that is, changed. He took those who were weak, who were base, who were resentful, who were angry, who were anything you want to name that is ungodly. Us. And he said, I am setting you aside for a purpose, for a reason, a holy purpose, and reason. And that is why I'm giving you my truth. And in doing that, he was telling you and telling me, I do not want you to be the way you are anymore. I do not want you using excuses anymore. I do not want you blaming others anymore. I don't want you comparing yourselves among yourselves anymore. I want you to compare yourself with Emmanuel and the Father. And I want you to remain, become and remain humble and meek. Not prideful, not egocentric, because the comparison you make daily is between you and the Father and Son. And therefore, you have no room for ego, or self, or anger, resentment, or any of those negative emotions, because you compare yourself to God, not to each other. And before God, we are all found guilty. Now, James is, or Jude is saying an awful lot here with few words. If it's not the shortest book in the Bible, maybe Philemon is. If it's not the shortest, it's certainly one of the two or three shortest. But it is packed with information for the church. Now, if mercy, peace, and love are going to be multiplied within the family, the people of God, then that means that all the negative attitudes, the works of the flesh, have to go away.
because resentment and anger and sin cannot flourish, cannot exist in a mind and a heart filled with mercy, peace, and love. Correct? You can't serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve your flesh and the eternal God at the same time. That is why every day is an exercise in bringing every thought, every emotion, every feeling into the captivity of the Lord Christ. Now, God does not say these things lightly. This is something He expects of us. So we must get rid of the works of the flesh and produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is really what he summarizes here, mercy, peace, and love. We must create an environment that is filled with those three things. And that is the first, the first thing he says, the first thing he focuses on, and what his wish to the church would be. Now, he had been, all his life, remember, a brother of Christ, of James, had been around Christ all his life, and the first thing on his mind was, I want you people to live in mercy, peace, and love. Am I exercising another futility with the foolishness of preaching, as Paul put it. In one sense, it is foolish to preach. It is foolish that it needs to be done. Because you have minds, and you have Bibles, and you can read the words of God, and you should be able then, theoretically, to apply that in your lives and not need anyone to stand up and create resentment and bad feelings every time he steps on your toes with the foolishness of preaching. Theoretically, that's the way it ought to be. Realistically, it doesn't work that way. God has always had teachers of the righteousness that we need to have at least from Enoch forward. And he has always done that. But the reason I bring that up again is this. I am just as flawed, just as weak, just as base as anyone else here, and maybe worse than most or all, but let's not compare. I can only compare myself with Christ and I fall so very far short of that, and so do you. So we're all here together, and we're instructed to build a body that can live together with all the parts in harmony, peace, and love, and mercy. Now, you can start your scorecard there if you want. Not about anybody else in this room. Don't you dare. Sit there and try to figure out who he's talking to. I'm talking to you and me. We cannot 
compare ourselves among ourselves. It is not wise. In fact, it is the height of foolishness to compare ourselves among ourselves. And brethren, every one of us does it every day. We do. How can we grow in mercy, peace, and love and multiply it among ourselves if we do that? Because it gives us every opportunity to be proud or selfish or to put ourselves and esteem ourselves higher by comparison than someone else. You don't like the way they do things. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they breathe, maybe. Do not forget, each and every one of them is called of the Father in heaven. And you do not have the right to criticize, to put down, to compare anyone with yourself, with someone else, or anyone but God. We do not have that right. And when we do, we break the bond of mercy, love, and peace that we are told not to just sort of have, but to multiply. Now, I can preach this until I'm blue in the face, and it means absolutely nothing if we don't take heed to these words of God written through Jude and all the others who wrote. It means nothing. I could go to 1 Corinthians 13 right there and spend the rest of the day and a long time. It doesn't matter how much prophecy you know and understand. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. You know, you can come to know the intricacies of knowledge in the Bible and you can get proud of that. But if you can't love your brother and your sister, it means nothing. That's exactly the way Paul put it. He listed a whole lot of things that we can be and have. But if we have not gotten rid of our selfishness, our comparisons, our criticisms, our resentments, our grudges, our leaning on the past, be it with people here, past acquaintances, former ministers, family, mother, father, brother, sister, if we don't get rid of those attitudes, then we are nothing and less than nothing. It's all just so many words. It means nothing unless we change our attitudes. You say, well, I'm converted, or they're converted. What do you mean, converted? Converted means changed. That's what it means. You convert water to steam. It is a different thing. It's not water sitting in a pail anymore. It's something floating in the atmosphere. It's different. So we can sit and listen. And the words can seem good. 
And the words can seem bad if they hit our toes. But it really doesn't matter, does it? Unless we do something about it. Let's go to James 2. He was the brother of Christ. I'll turn back there for a moment. James 2, I want to go down to verse 14. Now, we're going to get into something here about how they turned the grace, verse 4 in Jude, of God into lawlessness. Not believing the law needs to be kept, but that we're living under grace so we don't have to worry anymore. I had somebody just a few years ago tell me that, well, I finally figured this thing out. I used to fight myself every day and I used to work at it and I'd feel bad about my thoughts and my feelings and my actions. But now I've learned about grace and life is so easy now. I don't worry about anything. I know that the grace of God will take care of everything. Now, that's as Protestant as you can get, and it is unscript- as un- unscriptural as you can get. Let's pick it up here in verse 14. What does it profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? Now, faith is one of the big three, isn't it? But what about faith and works? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? I mean, you can tell them, have a nice drink and have some food. That would be good for you. Uh, And then you don't give them anything. How does it help them? So, you can mean well, and you can have good intentions, but unless you actually do some things for people, it means nothing. Now, let me temper that before we start running off and helping those who should not be helped. Do we understand God at all sometimes? You know, a lot of us came out of a Protestant background. All sweetness and love and grace. And we interpret these things as we should always help everybody that thinks they need help. You know, God is not that way, brethren. You have to see all sides of Christ. Was He compassionate? Was He merciful? Even with a Gentile woman? who had a better attitude than anybody he had seen in Israel? Did he give her the crumbs off the table? Yes, he did. And more. He's very kind, very patient, very merciful, and very loving, thank God. But in Protestantism, sometimes we lose the sight of the other side of God. He has many, many different facets to his personality. Now, what did he say to the money changers in the temple? I want to take you fellows to lunch, and and let's talk. No, he ran them out, overturned their tables, and kicked their butts goodbye. Now, he is the God of love and mercy, forgiveness, but how is he returning? 
In a vesture dipped with blood when he comes back to take vengeance, not when he first comes for his bride. And he is going to make war. And he is going to kill millions of people. Via the sword and via plagues and everything else. Now that may not be the side of him that you prefer or that the Methodists and the Baptists prefer. But it is one of the facets of his personality. And he is not going to abide sin in himself or in anyone else. Let's understand that. So when we read, take care of those who have need, then we have to also put the rest of the scriptures with it, where he also says, if a man won't work, he should not eat. Where it says, if a man will not take care of his own household, he's worse than an infidel. Do we gloss over those scriptures? God expects all of us to be productive and take care of things and not become beggars and moochers and ne'er-do-wells who will do nothing and expect somebody else to feed them. So there's a line in there between, yes, take care of those who are doing what they can and they're working and they're trying and they're producing as best they can and yet they still fall short then they can receive some help from us. But you'd better be sure that they are doing their part. Otherwise, God says, do not help them. And if you do, you are disobeying God. Okay? Let's understand that. But going on down to verse 17, before I get too far afield. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Faith that does not produce something is dead. Yes, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I believe the things of God. I believe in what God says. I believe His way is right. And I'm going to show you that by the way that I live, not just tell you I have faith in the Lord and never do anything. So he's making it very clear that faith alone is no good without works. And preaching and listening is no good unless we go home and get converted. Change our attitudes like water to steam or like steam to water coming in maybe the form of clouds and rain. God expects us to be different than what we are. So no matter how much knowledge you have and how intricate that knowledge might be of God, if it does not translate to your mind, to your emotions, to your attitudes and your actions... It means nothing and less than nothing and will condemn you. We are held responsible for what we know. And the more knowledge we get, the more responsible we are held. Understand that in my job, I am judged twice as harshly as you are by God himself. He says so. 
My judgment will be far harsher than yours. Anybody want to preach? It's scary. You believe there is one God. Well, you do well. Don't we all believe that? The devils also believe and tremble. Even the demons know there's one God, and they're scared spitless, because they know what's coming. So just knowing there's only one God doesn't do anything for you. The demons know that. What does it do for them? But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So anybody preaches, you don't need works, aren't following Scripture. Let's go back to the book of Jude. Mercy, peace, and love needs to be multiplied among us. And to multiply it, we're going to have to get rid of some other things that are in the way. Beloved, verse 3, When I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you. So he said, now, I wanted to write a letter... It was impressed upon me, I would say, by the Spirit of God to write this book because God wanted what was in Jude's mind to be put in a letter to the church. And God knew, as he inspired Jude to write this, that he was going to canonize it as part of Scripture. So he says, when I gave diligence to write you about our salvation, about the things that we need to know about and think about, so that we might be a part of the bride, the first resurrection. When I thought about writing about this, exhortation came to my mind. And the exhortation was that we earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now, faith can have a fairly broad range Faith, as we know in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the evidence of things not seen. So, some things we take on faith. That there really will be salvation. That the mortal will become immortal. That corruption can take on incorruption. We believe God. Because, why? He says in Romans 1 that we look around at the creation that He has made. And by the evidence of the senses there, we understand that somehow this had to come to be, and evolution just simply falls so far short of that. We know there has to be a being there who did it, though we cannot see him. So we take that on faith, that he is still alive, and that what he did is a testimony to him. So, the faith that there is a God and in God can be partially discerned by what we see around us, but there's element of the element of those things that we simply do not see, but we take them to be because we see some things around us. So, the faith means faith in God. It also can be used in terms of a body of beliefs, People say, well, what is your faith? Mormon, Baptist, Catholic, whatever. 
It can be a body of beliefs. So, what was given to the church by Christ, and really to Adam and Eve, even Adam and Eve, perhaps that even, after they were created, they were given a body of beliefs, a certain way to live, dress and keep the garden, which we discussed in the announcements. They were given the Sabbath. They were given the commandments, frankly. Uh, Even though they were not codified or written down at that point, they were verbally given. And it's very clear from Cain and Abel that the law was extant, that murder was not something that was to be done, whether it's character assassination or physical murder or whatever. So that faith that was given to Adam and Eve and that which was emphasized by Christ during his ministry and even put on a higher plane, not only of physical acts, but mental, emotional thoughts and feelings have to also be controlled and channeled in a right way. So earnestly contending to that which was given to us. And how was it given to us? Well, the Old Testament scriptures start with Genesis and show all the things that God did throughout that part of history, and then Christ's testimony recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the Acts of the Apostles and the things that they wrote that they learned from Christ, are all put here, and those are the things that we earnestly contend for. Now, by nature, we are selfish, we are proud, we are vain, we are angry, we are impatient, we are... Lawless by nature. And we have to be converted from that to have a different approach and attitude. So conversion is not something that happened as an encapsulated thing before you were baptized. It is a continuing process. You say, well, that person's converted. And I would say, no, that person is partially converted. Whether it be 1% or 85%, they are not converted. They are in the process of changing. And it is still ongoing. And that is why we can look around at each other and we can see that we are none of us completely converted yet. Because our reactions and our emotions and our words do not express total conversion. We are still converted to things of nurture as we grew up. We are still obsessed by nature, human nature, and the nature of Satan around us and the culture of Babylon about us. We are infected and influenced by all those things. And therefore, the conversion is far from perfect and far from complete. But please, I'm going to quit rattling here and, oh, pretty soon. And you're going to go home, and you're either going to have internalized and thought about some of these things deeply, or it will be like most sermons and you'll forget it by the first bite of potluck. 
It means nothing for anyone to flap their gums unless we're willing to look at ourselves deeply and decide to get in line with the scriptures that are being read to us and explained and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, getting old, expounded to us. Now, are we willing to give up our excuses, our blames, for why we are what we are? Are we willing to set deep thought patterns and habits aside and change them to come in line with God? Understand, that's what he called us here to do. He did not expect us to have the same attitudes we had when we were 3, 4, 10, 14, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. 70, 80, if you please. He brought us here to change our whole approach and attitude. That's what conversion is all about. Remember all the doctrines you changed when you first came into a knowledge of the truth? Yes, we changed the doctrines. We dropped Sunday and kept Saturday. We dropped Christmas and Easter and kept the holy days. We dropped pig and ate beef. On and on it goes. We changed a lot of physical things. Well, that's well and good. But have we changed our deepest rooted attitudes that go all the way back? Well, I'm this way because. Now, the next adjunct to that might be, I will always be this way because of what was and who was and what they did and what their attitude was. No! Do not dare go there in your thinking. You're not called to be like your parents were. You're not called to be like your brothers and sisters were. You're not called to be what your third class te third grade teacher was. You are not called to be like Satan the devil. You are not called to be like Cain. You are not called to be like Esau and stay that way. You are called to change and be like the Father in heaven and His Son, the Lord Christ. Do we even begin to comprehend that? You have no right whatsoever to harbor any grudge, any resentment, any attitude toward any human being on this earth, dead or alive. Your background, your teaching, the way you were handled is not an excuse whatsoever. It is simply your crutch that you use to stay the way you are and make yourself miserable and unhappy 
because of your attitudes. Esau was in a bitter, unrepentant, grudge-bearing attitude, and he hated himself and hated the way he was, but it had become so deep-seated that through prayer and seeking and wanting, he was unable to turn loose. He was unable to change those deep-rooted attitudes that he had. Now, let me tell you a difference between you and Esau. I'll let you start using him for an excuse. Esau did not have the Spirit of God. He did not have it. We do. And that Spirit should be an agent of change in our lives and our thought patterns. And we should not be like our past. We should be like our future. And why am I emphasizing this so much? Because it is so damnably hard for human beings to change their approach, their attitude, and their whole manner of being, thinking, acting, and talking. That's why. It is hard to even accept, much less do anything about. But we have an advocate in the Father and the Son so that we should be able, with His help, to change any and every thing wrong about us and be converted to His way. It is not a sin initially to be weak and base. We were that way. Yes, we were living in sin, but now we're supposed to be getting over that. We're supposed to be changing. And we went to God and we said, I am worthless. I'm no good for anything. I truly am weak and I truly am base. The things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I don't want to do, I don't do. I need your help. I repent. I change. I'm going to be different. Fill me with your spirit so I can be different. Now that is a commitment. That is a vow we made. Is that I will no longer remain what I am, but I will change what is wrong with me, and I will be like you. Now if we fall short of that... We're in danger of eternal judgment. It is a matter of life and death that we not continue on such as we are, as we are. God does not expect us to stay the way we are. It is a sin to stay the way we are. We must change, we must be different. If our whole approach is wrong, it has got to be altered. Now, can that be done? Yes. If you started the conversion process with a few physical changes, with a few mental and emotional changes, it is a process that can continue. But I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of work. 
It takes a lot of repentance. It takes a lot of introspective thinking to recognize what we are, to be willing to face it, and then to do something about it. We simply will hide from ourselves, won't we? We will not allow ourselves to realize what we really are. And we will use any excuse we can find to blame somebody else, or the culture, or the devil, or God himself for what we are, won't we? And in so doing, we shut ourselves off from the possibility of change. And we shut ourselves off from peace and love and mercy and kindness and gentleness and warm, loving fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the church because we refuse to give up our animosities and our criticisms and our comparisons of ourselves among ourselves. I didn't know whether I could spend an hour, hour and a half on Jude or not. So let's go on in verse 4. Earnestly contending for the faith of the Bible and the change. Before I go on, let's ask a question. What good is it for us to be in the church of God? To have the knowledge that we have? and work at it, and frustrate over it, and try to stay in a good attitude and not get too frustrated or depressed or discouraged or whatever we get. What good is it if we fail in the end and are judged by the amount of mercy, forgiveness, and love we have toward others and are condemned for it? What was it worth? Why do we fight it? Unless we are bound and determined to succeed at it. And we go to God to receive the strength and the power and the desire to do something about it. That's what Christ had to do. He went off into the mountains to pray. He got up early before the pressures of the day hit him, to pray. He had to stay close to his Father or he would have sinned. We are not as close to our Father as Christ was. Therefore, we still sin. Every one of us. And for us to compare ourselves among ourselves and my sins and your sins and my way of doing things and your way of doing things is such an exercise in utter futility and waste of time and energy, emotion and feeling that is negative for nothing. We're here to create a climate of love, peace and mercy and to succeed and to be a part of the kingdom of God and to have learned enough while we were here in boot camp to help straighten out the rest of the world so that they can live in love and peace and harmony 
That's what this is all about. He's called you and me here to learn to live that way so we can teach others. And if we sit here and wallow in our criticism and backstabbing and gossip and hurtful feelings and criticisms and comparisons, we haven't learned a blasted thing and we will not be qualified to help teach the world to live in peace. So you and I need to get busy changing our attitudes and the way we think and feel. Or this is all futility. For there are certain men crept in, unaware, unsuspectingly, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lawlessness. The whole Protestant world has done it. Many in the church have done it. And we, by our actions, also do it when we do not keep the laws of God and turn His unmerited pardon, His love, His mercy, His kindness, His patience into lawlessness and denying the only Lord God, the Father, and our Lord, Emmanuel. We don't deny Him in name, do we? We deny Him in deed. We deny Him in feelings. We deny Him in emotions. We deny Him when we treat each other like crap. Did I say that? Yes, I did. God uses dung. It all smells about the same. All right, then. For those who get their feelings hurt easily, treat each other like dung. Now do you feel better? Dung just doesn't have the quite the same aroma as crap in our society today. I wanted us to get the feeling and the smell. Are we turning His love and grace and mercy into unrighteousness by not being willing to change and go His way? I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Eternal, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. They griped, they murmured, they complained, and their carcasses fell in the wilderness. We know the story. But let's not forget that story. Because if we murmur and gripe and complain and are in a negative attitude now, then our carcasses will also fall. He expects us to change that and not be that way anymore. I know it's a hard process. I'm still working on it daily, momentarily. But let's recognize that need to change the deep-seated attitudes we have. You know, we can fluff along trying to change the way we talk a little bit. But what, our, what about our deep-seated angers and animosities and resentments and grudges and all those things that keep us from living together peacefully and in love? And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness to the judgment of the great day. The angels, if they sin, if they turn to negativity and selfishness, chained in darkness, apparently forevermore, except for a short season 
in which they are released. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and not only fornication, but natural desires between men and women, but going after strange flesh or homosexuality and lesbianism, which we see all around us today increasingly, are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, there are those in our society, our culture, and our government who would be willing to put me in jail for a hate crime did they hear me read this and say what I'm saying. That's just too bad. It's the Word of God. And I will not be muzzled. And I don't fear going to jail for that, though it could happen. Could happen. They put Peter and others in jail. They even killed Paul, and they wound up killing nearly all the apostles, everybody except John. So, hey, it really doesn't matter, does it? We teach, we preach, we follow the things of God. And we are putting our lives on the line. I just put my life on the line by condemning homosexuality. And I will not back off. I believe these words of God. And I believe it when he says we must multiply love, mercy, and peace among us as well. Now you can sit there and say, say on, brother, when I talk about homosexuality being bad. Because you don't probably have the problem. It's when we step on our own toes when we read the Scripture that we get uncomfortable. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. We have to be careful in our attitudes, not only toward the dignitaries of the world, as Romans 13 points out, but he's speaking within the church here. We have to be very, very careful. He'll go on to explain this. Filthy dreamers, what does that mean? Well, it means we have within our own head our own feelings, our own animosities that no one else maybe can see, our own attitudes toward government. They defile the flesh, and part of that defilation of the flesh is by despising the dominion or the government that God has placed within the church and within the country and speak evil of dignitaries. I bet you money. Well, I guess we shouldn't do that, but I'll bet there's not one person in this room who has not spoken something evil about me at one time or another. Probably a lot of it deservedly so. But we need to be careful. I have to take seriously the job that God gave me. I have to understand. I get twice the judgment. Twice as harsh. But if God sets those offices, and He has, He's the one that set them. I was called to this job. I was ordained 
by the hands of Herbert Armstrong himself for what that's worth. Others were ordained. They didn't have that necessarily. doesn't mean it was invalid. But I use it only to express this, that if God used that man to raise up the end-time work and he laid hands on somebody, then somebody needs to take that pretty seriously. And I have to. And I don't take it seriously enough a lot of times, obviously, because I don't always obey God in the way that I should, and my attitudes aren't always right. And I have to work at it every day that I breathe air. And it is hard. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm carnal to the bone. Human to the bone. And I have to fight myself every day I walk. And I know you do too. And if you don't, you don't understand yourself. But he's warning here. Yet Michael uses an example. The archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation but said, the Eternal rebuke you. Now, did Michael know the rebellion of Satan and the demons? Yes, he did. And yet, Satan and those demons had an office conferred on them by God himself. And he would not even speak evil to the devil. Now, that's the example that Jude uses exhorting the church in the right attitude to have. You don't even dare speak evil against the devil himself. Because he holds an office that God gave. And it doesn't matter how bad the devil is. How bad's the devil? He's pretty bad. It doesn't matter. Michael the archangel, who had the right attitude toward God and the devil dared not bring an accusation against Satan. That should give us something to think about. Now, set the ministry aside. Each and every one of us here who are baptized, and a lot of you younger people as well who aren't and still understand a lot about God's truth, are here. Now, I don't see the devil here, and I pray he is not here. I see human beings who are being converted, who have been called by the Father in heaven, who are being preserved by Christ himself for the resurrection. And the difference, the vast difference between all of us and Satan should be pretty obvious. And yet, we dare to rail against and criticize one another. Now, is he writing to false evangelists out in the world? Or is he writing to you and me? You have an office. You are the affianced... Bride of Christ, set to hold 
one of the very highest offices in the kingdom of God and throughout the universe forevermore in the family of God. Now, Satan has thrown away his opportunity to approach the kingdom of God. He's not been shut completely off until a near time in the future when Revelation 12 is fulfilled. We are set aside, sanctified by the Father to be preserved of Christ, to inherit the world and the universe. How dare we bring railing accusation against one another. If Michael would not do it against Satan himself, how do we speak of the potential bride of Christ in anything but love and meekness and happiness and love, mercy, kindness, and peace? How dare we? I think we get lost sometimes and forget who we are and who each of us is. And we think carnally, we think selfishly, and we do worse than the devil sometimes. He brings railing accusation. But we should know better. We cannot continue to be the way we are. We must be converted. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. They don't grasp it. They don't comprehend it. I'm trying to get to some of the depths of things here today. Some of the things that we overlook or don't comprehend even within ourselves and our backgrounds and past. It's no excuse. We wake up in a new world every day. God gives us a fresh start, as the book of Lamentation tells us, every day when the sun comes up. We get past the nightly rest and face another day, the working, active part of it. He lets us rest up to prepare for it. And He gives us a fresh start, which is far beyond what we give each other sometimes. So, sometimes we know not. But what they know naturally is brute beasts and those things, they corrupt themselves. Just acting natural makes us like the beasts. What's natural to a human being? Vanity, ego, pride, adultery, fornication. Go ahead and name all the works of the flesh. Those are the things that are natural to us. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. What was Cain's way? Jealousy? Resentment? Comparing his brother with himself? And ultimately killing him. Now, we may not kill one another physically, but we don't, don't we assassinate one another emotionally and spiritually? That's what a lot of the death and destruction spiritually of Ezekiel 5 is all about. The famine of the 
famine, the pestilence, the sword. It's been a spiritual sword going through the church. It's killed a lot off, and only a 10% remnant is going to remain faithful and come to build the temple of God. But if they come to build the temple of God, they've got to have the right attitude, or they will be excluded somehow by God Himself. So we can't be like Cain. We can't be like Balaam, who did it for reward, self-esteem, pride, ego, for reward, and perished in the rebellion, the attitude of Korah. Now everybody doesn't, nobody likes it when you bring up Korah. It's just an attitude. My opinion's just as good as yours is. I'm just as important as you are. Well, God set the offices in the church as it pleased Him. He didn't make everybody a minister. He chose some weak and base and said, you straighten up and do that. And every one of us have failed at it, who have been put in that position. And you can find fault. It's easy to find. But we're not supposed to be on a fault-finding mission. We're not supposed to find problems with Moses, as Korah did. You think that's all past history? Don't we realize that God is going to produce another Moses here in the end time? A Moses and an Elijah, John the Baptist. Those offices are going to be fulfilled once again. Now, if you're in a negative, resentful of the ministry attitude, what's going to happen when those men appear? They will be despised. They will be laughed at. Ninety percent of the church will not accept them. Ninety percent. Nine out of ten people who know the truth of God will be in attitudes and approaches and emotional situations that will cause them to deny the Moses and Elijah that God sends. Can you believe that? How can that be possible? That nine out of ten people who understand the truth will deny the leadership that God sends. They will find fault with them. They will resent them. For whatever reasons. may vary from person to person. But they're simply not going to believe it and will not accept it. That is downright frightening. They could find fault with Moses. God did too, didn't he? But Moses was God's to deal with, not the people. Miriam, Aaron, Korah, whoever. That was God's responsibility, not theirs. And they perished as a result of that negative attitude and being willing to speak against Moses. We must be careful. Or will you be one of the ten, the ten percent, who sees and accepts 
what God sends. It won't be very many. Be careful of the attitudes that people had in the past. These are spots in your feasts of love. Now we're told in, in uh, James 2, no, that's not where I, James 1, verse 27, talks about pure religion and undefiled. To take care of the widows and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So a spot on a Christian is not like a spot on a dog. We're to be white and clean and pure, wearing garments of righteousness. And when there are spots on our spiritual garments, that means sin, it means something bad. We're not supposed to be a Dalmatian spiritually. And when we come to a feast of love, trumpets, atonement, Feast of Tabernacles coming up shortly. We're not supposed to be spots in the Feast of Love with attitudes of resentment, with attitudes of unforgiveness, with attitudes of grudging, but to live together for that time in love and peace and harmony without sin. That's what we're called here to do. So he says, when I see those spots in your feasts of love, when they feast with you, they come and keep the feast with you, but they're spotted like the world. They have these attitudes of Korah and Cain and Satan. Feeding themselves without fear. I'm okay, you're not. I'll take care of myself too bad for you. Clouds they are without water. What good is a cloud without rain? You can't grow anything with clouds. What good is it to have a knowledge of the truth and look like a billowy white cloud and not produce anything? Carried about of winds, blown about here and there, trees whose fruit withers without fruit. We're supposed to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, righteousness, joy, you know, all these things. Galatians 5. And as he's opened this letter with love, peace, and mercy. So if we are short of those things, it says we're like being twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He is comparing men, people, with satanic attitudes of rebellion, unforgiveness, lack of mercy, with the demons whose fate is the darkness of blackness forever. And if we sin and do not repent then we do not live forever in darkness, but we die and are gone forevermore. So, he's making a comparison here between Satan and his demons and humans who follow the way of Satan, which was the way of Cain and the way of Korah, and all these people with wrong attitudes. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. So, what Enoch preached way back before the flood, is applicable today. 
saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now that right there limits, and I used it in the series on how exclusive is the church. It limits how many are in the first resurrection, the bride of Christ. Tens of thousands, 144,000 to be exact. Not millions, not an innumerable multitude. They come later, as the Scriptures will plainly show. Let's not be sidetracked. To execute judgment upon all, and to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard words and speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And it says we deny him by denying his law and by denying his spirit, which is to produce good attitudes, good approaches, love, joy, peace, and so on, not bitterness, resentment, hatred, and war. So he is not going to put up with that. These are murmurers, like those in Israel, complainers, walking after their own feelings and lusts, and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons and admiration because of advantage. So, behind your back they will murmur and complain and gripe and spread negativity, but to your face, they will lick your boots and kiss your butt and polish your brass and whatever expressions we might want to come up with because they are duplicitous, because they are double-minded, and try to act like something they aren't. Now, is this just speaking of Wretched, horrible men who come in who are false teachers? Or is this just talking to us as church members? He says it doesn't do any good to come here as a masquerade ball, saying one thing and doing another, and acting like you're a God-fearing Christian, while without fear you slander and slam and gossip and backbite each other and produce everything which is contrary to love, peace, mercy, and forgiveness. But beloved, said some pretty harsh things here, hasn't he? But he says, but beloved, those whom I love, he says, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Emmanuel. Remember all the words that James, Peter, John, Paul wrote. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts, their own feelings, their own desires, their own whims, no matter who it hurts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit, not living by the Spirit. Now, we perhaps interpret sensual today as sexual, Sensual does, may include that, but it includes a lot of other things. In other words, he's saying living by the five senses. He opened this talking about faith and to have that kind of faith and not judge everything by what we see, we hear, we feel, the five senses. 
They separate themselves living by the five senses rather than walking in faith. Believing these things, which Jude and the others have written. But you, don't go by your five senses. Don't go by your feelings. Walk in the Spirit. Don't go by your past attitudes. No matter who gave them to you. Change them. Change them. What good does it do to preach? What does it do good for you to study? What good does it do unless you are determined to work daily at changing attitudes and thoughts and comments? It does no good. But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's the answer to the problem we've been discussing all day. You are not going to change yourself on your own. Any attitudes and deep-seated things that you've fought all your life are not going to change by you saying, after a sermon and reading the book of Jude, I think I'll be different now. No, you won't. You will walk out of here and wipe your mouth like it says the whore who said, I have done no wrong and went on doing what she was doing. Unless you go to your Father in heaven and His Son at His right hand and you beg and you plead and you fast and you pray and you study to change the attitudes that we have, every one of us. Build yourself up in the Spirit so that you don't walk after the fleshly, human senses and walk in the flesh. Keeping yourselves in the love, that is the obedience. This is the love of God that you keep His commandments. Not turning the grace of God into lawlessness, but keeping His commandments. Walk in that love. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Emmanuel unto eternal life. And we will not achieve eternal life without an awful lot of mercy. And he says, if we show mercy to others, he will show mercy to us. If we do not, he will not. So our eternal judgment is based, again I say, on how we treat one another right here. It's based on how you treat whichever one here you despise the most. Not, a one, not the one necessarily that you like the most. But the one that you have the most despite, resentment, frustration with, is one of our brothers and sisters as well. So when you decide to change your attitudes, change them toward the ones that you can't stand the most. And if you get that one fixed, the other ones will probably get fixed, won't they? And by so doing, you will keep yourself in the love of God, and you can expect mercy from our Lord Emmanuel and eternal life in the kingdom of God. And then he says, And of some have compassion, 
making a difference. Sometimes with sinners, depending on their attitude, you can have compassion, you can have mercy, you can be gentle, making a difference for them, if their attitudes are right. However, with others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Here we must have wisdom to discern attitude and spirit and approach and know when to show compassion and mercy and tenderness and kindness and forgiveness and when to know it's time to shake their teeth out and save them through fear. It's hard to know the difference. When do you yell at somebody and when do you show compassion and kindness and patience? When it boils down to attitude, really. They're meek, they're humble, they're willing to listen, teachable. You can have compassion and work with them. But if they're proud and full of ego and my way is the only way and will not listen and are not teachable, but think they know it all, then you've got to jerk them out of the fire with fear. Now to him that is able, he is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, if you feel a little depressed and discouraged by what has been said so far today, take heart, take hope. Because Christ himself came and lived a very perfect life and never sinned and is able to be our high priest, our mediator, our elder brother, our husband to come with all power and the glory of the universe and with the full measure of the Spirit of the Father to come and help keep us from falling. And we must enlist His help and His strength walking in the Spirit of God because it can be done. And He did not call you to fail. He called you to succeed. And He said, Come to Me. Seek the power, the strength, the courage, the faith, the love, the joy and the peace that you need to live together in love and harmony in the body of Christ so that you can be accepted into the family of God. And He is able to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Now, we are not faultless, but through His blood and His forgiveness, He can make us faultless. And we will never achieve that without it. So go to it. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.